Galatians 6, verse 11 says, See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. So God's word is living and powerful, and it gets down into the deep parts of our lives, past the activity, down to the motives. I think that makes people kind of scared about God and the Bible, like, whoa, you know, people really know who I am. They know what makes me tick or doesn't make me tick. And here's my question this morning as we get into Galatians 6. Have you ever felt like a pawn in somebody else's chess game? You ever felt like you were being used? Honestly, raise your hand if you ever felt like you were being used. Like just manipulated or it didn't really matter what you thought or no one really cared about you. It was just about them accomplishing their agenda and you were just a means to the end that they wanted to accomplish. You just felt used. That there's an agenda at play and somehow I'm part of this game that people are playing. It could be lots of different realms. And again, I'm going to let you make application as you see fit. But if that's how you feel, you've ever felt, you will be able to find common ground with the Galatians. They had become a pawn, a chess piece, in a bigger game of people-pleasing, in a bigger game of agendas and ambitions and accomplishments. And you'll see that as we go through. So I ask myself the question, well, how do I avoid being used that way? How can I be wise enough to see through those games. I mean, in all of this, all through Galatians, Paul has been addressing the people of this region of Galatia who are being bewitched. They're being turned away from Christ. They're being manipulated and coerced. And they're buying it. They're buying it. And it is frustrating Paul because Paul wants them to know that they're free. They're saved by grace, not by Jesus and something else. But they're pawns. And Paul is not being sucked back into this game. He's not being sucked back into legalism and works-based, performance-based relationship with God. He's able to stand firm. And he tells them, you stand firm. And I want to stand firm in my freedom in Christ. Do you want to stand firm in your freedom in Christ? So we got to say, well, how do we do that? And now Paul, in this last section, you know, sometimes like the final words, the last words, are the summary that if you want people to remember something, it's what you say last. It's how you leave them, you know, what you say first and what you say last. So I think that we ought to place a lot of priority on these last words from Paul to the Galatians. Look how he starts, though, in verse 11. He says, see with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. And it seems just kind of tossed in there. What does that have to do with our discussion on coming through the fruit of the Spirit and 
crucifying the flesh with its passions and desires. And it doesn't really have anything to do with that. What Paul is saying is, I've come to the conclusion of the letter. And Paul's practice was, and this may be new information for you, Paul didn't write his own letters. He always had somebody that would write for him. He would dictate, he would pay. I, I always imagine Paul pacing the floor back and forth and thinking through, how do I want to say this? What should I say? Write this. No, 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 wait, wait. Write, write it this way. And he's hearing from the Lord and he's dictating. But then at the end of his letters, to authenticate them, he would take the pen or the stylus in his own hand and he would sign it. And you can read Thessalonians and you can read some of his other letters and he'll say, notice I've signed it with my own hand, like a signature, to authenticate it, to validate it. And the interesting thing about Paul's signature, his John Hancock, if you read the declaration, you see the John Hancock signature is super big, isn't it? So he authenticates this and he writes this whole last section. Instead of just signing it, he's compelled to write a little bit more. And he writes it himself. And what they're supposed to notice is these large letters he's written. This is the first time, the first printing of a large print Bible. How many of you read large print Bibles? Well, Paul invented that. But the question is, I'm not going to get into detail here. People argue or discuss what that means. Why did he write with large letters? Did it mean that it could be interpreted that the magnitude of his letter was extremely large and important. See, I've written to you this very important letter. It could mean that. Some say that Paul's writing with such large letters because of his eye problem, that he had eye problems. Remember the Galatians offered to, he said, you've loved me so much that you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. So some say that because Paul had this besetting eye issue that he would write with large letters because of the biological problem and others say he's writing with large letters. When's the last time you sent an email and you wrote something in all capitals? For emphasis, right? So others say, well, it's not an I issue. It's not the magnitude of his letter. It's the emphasis he's putting on this last section. Like, I really want to emphasize the importance of what I'm saying. It could be any of those things we don't know for sure. But that's what he says. I'm signing this. I'm writing this to the Apostle Paul, writing this himself. Verse 12. He says, as many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. So as we live our lives, we recognize people have agendas. I don't think I'm telling you something you don't already know when we think about people's ambitions and agendas. Can you agree on that? People have agendas and ambitions. They want to accomplish something. They want to prove something. They want to be something. They want to do something. And they need you to do it. So how do we recognize it? How does Paul, as he has his final words with the Galatians, he kind of goes past the action. He says, I want you to understand what the real motives are. What's really going on? And I think this is as relevant today as it was when Paul talked about it. It's relevant to understand what's going on. You got to dig a little deeper than the surface. Not just what people are doing, but why are they doing it? Not just what I'm doing, but why am I doing it? You ever ask yourself that question? Why do I do that? Usually it's the fourth or fifth time I've made the same stupid mistake and I go, oh, why do I keep doing that? What is driving me? Well, Paul says the first thing you have to do is recognize pressure. Recognize pressure. They were subject to, in Galatia, a high 
pressure sales pitch to be circumcised. That was the thing for them. For other people, it's different things. But they were under pressure from these outsiders who have come in and said, well, Jesus is great, but he's not enough. You have to go through this ritual, this insignia, the sign of circumcision that makes you part of the Jewish culture, the Jewish tradition. So there's a lot of pressure. The word for compel means to compel by force or threats or the circumstance. This is what advertising is built on. Advertising is built on compelling you to do something based on your fear. If you don't eat this cereal, you're going to get cancer. If you don't do this thing, you're going to be ugly. You're going to get old. But we got a product to help you out. And so there's a forcefulness. There's a compulsion. I don't know if you've learned this. I've learned this, that if I go somewhere to make a purchase and the salesman begins to pressure me or tell me like, it's got to be now or never. I'm sorry, it's never. It's never. I can't stand high pressure salespeople because usually they want something for themselves. And can I just say a quick note? This applies greatly to dating and sexual purity. If there's a high pressure sales pitch to be involved sexually or intimately, then the answer is no. No, I'm not getting involved because I don't want to be pressured into doing something by you. Paul knows about this because he did it himself. Acts 26, 11, when Paul's speaking to King Agrippa, he says, many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme, to compel them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. Pressure is often present when people want something for themselves. What did the false teachers in Galatia want? What was their deal? What was their motive? Why were they exerting this pressure? Have you ever experienced religious pressure? by the way? You ever experienced that hard sales pitch? Well, if you don't get saved today, you're going to hell. Some people sound like they like the idea of you going to hell. And there's the sales pitch because they want notches on the belt. They want to be able to go to their meeting, their denominational meeting and say, well, look how many people we saved. And that's exactly what's happening in Galatia. What did they really want? As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh. Why the pressure? desire to look good. How do you become a people pleaser? Have a desire to look good to others. How do you avoid being a pawn, being manipulated? Recognize when people are doing it just for what they're going to get, not because they care about you. You can tell, can't you? You can usually tell the difference. But this is really interesting. These Judaizers, the one pressuring to religious works, they wanted to look good in their group. See, there's another party in this passage, there's the Galatians, and then there's the Judaizers, the one putting the pressure. But then there's some party of people, probably in Jerusalem, that the Judaizers are trying desperately to please or to be accepted by. So that's their desire. They wanted bragging rights. They wanted something to prove to a group that they didn't want to be rejected from. And the Galatians were just a pawn in that. They didn't care about the Galatians, didn't care about their spiritual life. All they wanted to do is run back to Jerusalem and say, hey, look how many people we got circumcised in Galatia. Look how many people we stole away from the Apostle Paul. The interesting thing about this is to make a good showing. If you like to take notes, you can write this down. It's literally a compound word from two words. The first word is good, and the second word is face. Good face. They wanted to have good face. 
that doesn't mean they put on makeup and mascara and all that. It's not about makeup and good face, not the physical. What does Paul mean when he says good face? You ever felt like you lost face? You want to try to save face? It has to do with dignity and honor and reputation and acceptance. See, all through this, all through this last section, everything that colors this comes from a shame and honor culture. See, for some cultures, the most important thing is morality, what's morally right and morally wrong. But how those things are determined are very cultural. In a shame and honor culture, what's right and wrong is determined by what helps me save face or how I'm going to lose face, who I hang out with or who I don't hang out with, who accepts me, who rejects me. So Paul says all they want to do is have good face. They want to look good. They want to be accepted. They want to be respected. And they want approval. See, in that kind of culture, how you appear is everything. doesn't matter how things really are. What matters is how you appear. Remember the Pharisees? Jesus talks to the Pharisees. Well, he talks to his disciples about the Pharisees. And he says, don't be like them. Why not? Because everything they do, they do for what reason? To be seen by men. Everything they do is about how it appears. Empty, he said, you're empty on the inside, full of dead men's bones. It was all about appearances. In the church, I wonder how much mission work, I wonder how many mission trips are done with the completely wrong motive. That all the mission trip is about is I come back and I show the pictures of the orphans that I worked with. And we don't like to admit that. I'm not saying everyone. I'm saying there's wonderful people that are doing great work for the right motive, that love is the motive. Love is the only motive that matters to God. Not people going, ooh, ah, impressive. Oh, you went where? You did what? Wow, you're spiritual. So we have to be careful about ourselves and our own motives because we want to gain face in a group. Remember Peter? Paul had to confront Peter because Peter became a hypocrite because a certain group came, and when that group came that disapproved, they looked down their nose at Peter with their disapproval of his behavior, eating with Gentiles. Peter, we thought you better than that. And as soon as Peter saw them, he withdrew because he wanted to please that group more than he wanted to please God. Have you ever fallen into that category? You ever said something or agreed with someone that you didn't really agree with, but because you didn't want to look bad? Come on now, you're in church. Don't lie to me. I would venture to say we've all done it. We've all done it. And we live right now, you see the culture we're living in, the coercion, the pressure, the guilt, the fear, the shame. This is nothing new. So another motive, he says, the second motive, the first one was a desire to have good face or to really look good in their own accomplishments. The second one is the desire to avoid rejection. He says that they may not suffer persecution, harassment, hostility for the cross of Christ. Can I paraphrase this in the Steve Fedden version? Paul said they want to get you circumcised because they're chickens. Really deep down, they're just chicken. They don't want to go through anything hard. They lack courage. When the most important thing in your life is acceptance from people and gaining respect from people, then you'll do whatever it takes to get it. See, the cross has never been popular, super unpopular. Now it's kind of like a little, you know, people wear it around their neck. It's a little piece of jewelry. But at Jesus' time, the cross was not just an emblem of torture. 
and murder or capital punishment, the most important thing about the cross was its humiliation. Cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. Isn't that what we learned from the Old Testament? So the person who's hanging on a tree is suffering the shame and humiliation of being punished by God. They're a humiliated person. And that, Jesus hung naked on the cross, all people coming and going, wagging their fingers at him, talking about him. If he's God, let him save himself. Get himself down from there. Oh, how many of you like know that feeling of, oh, I hate that, that feeling of being humiliated and dishonored and disrespected? So that was the cross. So Paul says they're trying to avoid feeling that way. They just don't want to feel persecuted. They're going to say whatever they have to say to be accepted. Now, again, I think we can relate to that. Paul had to say in Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Let me ask a question. And this may be a touchy question. I recognize that. And I'm not going to ask you to answer it. But I asked this question to prove a point. Or maybe not. Maybe you'll hear the question and you'll go, yeah, I'm in the right place. But I recognize it's going to be a sensitive question, so just hear me out. There's two objects I'm going to put in front of you, not literally, but I'm going to talk to you about. And I want you to tell me which one brings the most feeling of internal emotional connection. Okay, you ready? The first one is the American flag, and the second one is the cross. Which one do you feel more emotionally connected to? And it could be other things, other emblems or outward signs or symbols. For them, it was circumcision more important than the cross. Now, look, I'm not being anti-American or anti-patriotic. But I think what we fall into so easily is the sense of accomplishment and pride in certain human emblems and things. Those things are there. We know we are in the world but we are not of the world. We are heavenly people. And I hate to say it. Well, no, I don't hate to say it because it's true. Anything else is idolatry. Can I honestly say that? Anything else is idolatry. Put anything above, to boast in anything above the cross of Jesus Christ is saying, I want to experience the pride of this group and I want to avoid the shame that's associated with associating myself with the Son of God, which just shames God. So when Paul says they don't want to suffer persecution, it means they don't want to experience the shame of being connected with Jesus in his humiliation. And unfortunately, I think one of the challenges for us as Christians is we feel that real sense of, if I associate myself with Jesus... I'm going to associate myself with the shame. And I don't like that. Who does? I don't like that. I want to feel pleasure. I want to be accepted. I want everybody to love me. Don't kid yourself. The minute this person loves you, that person won't. So let's not kid ourselves. To reject God's son is to dishonor God. Everyone wants to be connected to power and accomplishment But the cross tells me that meaningful accomplishment comes through humility. The cross says to me, I need a Savior. I'm not as great as I thought I was. Philippians chapter 2, 3, Paul says, Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ, 
Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. See, in pride, we value ourselves above others. I was going to say this. I think this is going to come up later in my message, but I'll say it now. I did a little research on pride movements. We got gay pride. We got women's pride. We got black pride. We got white pride. We got everybody's got their pride movement. Everybody's desperate. Listen, the rhetoric behind all of this, this is why the Bible is so relevant to you and to me today. What people really want is acceptance and belonging and honor. Because we know deep inside, we ain't that great. And it's scary to us. So there is a desperate search. What we see going on in our world is a desperate search for true honor. When people get disrespected, when a culture gets disrespected or shamed, the natural response to that, the shame-honor response to that is, I need to be honored. It's true of whatever your color, whatever your economic group, whatever situation, it's true of all of us. Everybody. You want to get down deeper and deeper to motives. The motives of my life are all too often, I want honor from you, and I'll get it at all costs. Sometimes that person means more to you than God does. And I'm preaching to myself. I think I've told you this story before, but there's three new people here, so I'll tell it again. (laughs) A guy that I used to work with, you know, I had witnessed to him, witnessed to him. We'd drive around in our trucks together and in the front seat, talk about life and God and things. And I'm witnessing to him and he's hemming and hawing. And, you know, he never really did give his life to Christ at that time. Years later, I saw him in like Walmart, the grocery store. And I said, hey, how's it going? And we talked, struck up conversation. And he said, hey, you know what? I became a Christian. You became a Christian? Really? What pushed you over the edge? What did it? He said, I looked around the world and I realized that the only group of people that are universally persecuted everywhere is the Christian. So that must be the right one. And I thought, that is wonderful reasoning. That's brilliant. Lecrae, music recording artist, Lecrae said, if you live for people's acceptance, you will die from their rejection. So we have to dissect the rhetoric, dissect what people are saying. Look at verse 13. For not even those who are continually being, that's my addition to give it some color, Those who are being circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. See, they would say, oh, circumcision is all about honoring God and and keeping the commandments and keeping the, the law. They were full of hooey. That's not really what they meant. Is hooey a word? Is it a good word? Okay. Full of baloney. How about that? How many of you have ever heard someone say, well, how come people pick and choose what they want to out of the Bible? Have you ever heard that? Well, it's true. People do. Because they lie to themselves about their own consistency. They pick and choose what they want to put their emphasis on. What means acceptance in our group is this kind of Bible and this kind of clothing and this kind of thing and that kind of ritual. That's our group's acceptance. Well, what about that? No, no, we don't talk about that. Oh, we don't pay attention to that. We have our thing. And each group has its things. And it sounds good and it sounds spiritual. But Paul says, they don't even keep the law. They say they're keeping the law. They're lying to themselves and they're lying to you. The real deal, I love this. I love it when Paul gets below the skin, down to the joint and the marrow. He says, they want to have you circumcised so that they can boast in your flesh. 
you're just a statistic. How many baptisms this year? I've been in ministry for about 16 years now, and I've been to enough pastor's meetings and enough circles to know that so much of what's done is about how it looks. You know, how do you judge success? When you make something or you build something or you accomplish something, you can point to something and go, there it is. I'm successful. I built it and it's still standing. I built it and it looks great. You're an engineer. You're an architect. You're a doctor. You know, uh, I gave you the medicine and you got healed. I healed you. I did the surgery and you're fixed. But when you're in ministry, it's really hard to figure out if you're successful or not. And so often the things that you would put your identity in and making you successful would actually mean you're not. So pastors wrestle with that. So we go, well, look how many we baptized this year. Look how much money we brought in. Look how many things we're doing. And I'm not saying those are wrong things to be excited about. But when those become the measure of my life, now all of a sudden, see what happens as a pastor now, instead of preaching the word of God, because people don't like to hear about sin, they like to hear good messages, like the ears scratched. So I give good messages and we pack the church out and the world looks, the church world looks and go, wow, that's a successful church. We need to learn from them. How do you know? The seats are packed. I think the church of the last day is going to be the shrinking church, not the growing church. People walked away from Jesus when he preached. He said, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. They said, Jesus, we can't handle that. We're out of here. The rich young ruler, hey, sell all you have, give it to the poor, then you come follow me. He walked away sad. Jesus didn't go, oh, no, wait a second, wait a second, let me soften that for you. I didn't really mean that. The gospel is so inclusive, but it revolves around the Son of God. So how do we keep from being sucked into the game? How do I keep, how do you keep, how do we keep from being sucked into the game? Look at verse 14. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I mean, Paul, he knows what it's like to boast. You've read Philippians chapter three. Paul gives all the boxes he checked. I was circumcised on the eighth day from the tribe of Benjamin and I'm this and I'm that and I've kept the law and I've been faithful and all those things. Paul knew all about a culture of achievement. He knew what it was all about. He was forging himself a path in Judaism. He was a rising star in Judaism. He was doing all the right things. You know how it is. You got that group you want to impress. You know all the things you got to do to make it in that group. And Paul got there and he looked around. So useless. Once he met Jesus, he realized like Ecclesiastes, it's all vanity. So he says now in his life, Paul doesn't say this is what you guys should do. But he says, here's what I'm doing. Here's how I avoid that kind of nonsense. Here's how I avoid being a pawn. If I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in one thing. That's the cross of Jesus Christ. How come Paul didn't second guess himself? The world lost its power to him. I mean, I hope as a Christian, you know how that feels. That all of a sudden the world loses its grip on you. The Son of God gets a grip on you. Because people are losing their grip. Can we agree on that? People are losing their grip. And then Christ gets a grip on you and the world loses its grip on you. And it's wonderful. You know, no more boasting. I'm no longer concerned with how other people perceive me or validating from them or pride in their thing. Not going to check the boxes. 
anti-Semitism, Jewish pride. Paul's going to say, circumcision avails me nothing. Can you imagine how that sounded to his own people who put all of their trust and all of their relation with God hinged on this ritual? And Paul said, it's nothing. Paul had to make a stand even against his own culture. Paul, when he says, I'm going to boast about nothing except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, did Paul mean that the cross that Jesus was hung on was a beautiful piece of workmanship? Look at this cross behind me. That's a beautiful piece of workmanship. We have a guy in the church, he's a cabinet maker. And when we were building the church, he said, you know, I'd love to make the cross. And we said, fantastic. So I forget what kind of wood he used, but man, it's a beautiful piece of workmanship. And I can boast about that cross. I can boast about the cross. Do you see the difference? I'm boasting about a cross. But what Paul is saying, I'm not going to boast except in, in the cross. Not just the cross as a piece of wood, but in what it has done for my life. The Message Bible says it this way, because of that cross, I have been crucified in relation to the world, set free from the sifting atmosphere of pleasing others and fitting into the little patterns that they dictate. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, it's simple. You want to be a disciple? Want to be a disciple of Jesus? Here it is. Three easy steps. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow him. Now the key there is deny yourself. That doesn't mean, I want to follow Jesus so I can't drink alcohol. doesn't mean, I want to follow Jesus so I can't smoke cigarettes or I can't do this. That's denying myself something. But when Jesus said, deny yourself, he means deny who you are based on everything that everyone has ever said about you. Deny your identity in anything that the world puts in front of you. I get a whole new identity. Set free, set free from the world. Turning away from identity, value systems, belonging that are all part of a godless world. Why would we want to be something in a world that rejects the God who created everything? Why do we work so hard to find approval from people who disprove of the existence of God? I'm guilty too. I stand here before you human and frail, just like you. I scratch my head and go, yeah, Steve, why? Why? And then he tells us why. For in Christ Jesus, if I'm going to boast, if I'm going to brag about something, forget about me and what I've done. I'm going to boast. It's going to be at the cross, and here's why. For in Christ Jesus, verse 15, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. You can circle the word avails and write power. That's what it means. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any power. So if you really want to be sort of immune to being made upon or manipulated or becoming part of somebody else's bigger agenda, you can't be susceptible to people-pleasing. And the way you do that is by knowing where the real power is. You got to know where the real power is. See, the words circumcision and uncircumcision in that culture were culturally powerful words. So remember David and Goliath? When Goliath comes out to fight the battle and David's like, who is this guy? What's he mouthing off about Israel for? He said, what will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? 
Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Who is this guy? He's uncircumcised. He's part of a godless culture. And we're scared of him? We have God on our side. See, circumcision and uncircumcision was a cultural divider. There's Jew and there's not Jew. Think about it in the book of Acts. Peter going to Cornelius' house. The first time the gospel goes, the power of God seen through the Gentiles. In the book of Acts, the apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. (gasps) Peter, you crossed a cultural barrier. What do you think you're doing? We don't associate with those people. They're Democrats and you're a Republican. Oh, is that too close to home? I'm sorry. Republican avails you nothing. Democrat avails you nothing. Can't change your life. You know, you vote party lines, whatever you want to do, that's up to you. But those are secondary, tertiary things. See, but he says in Christ Jesus, outside of Christ, outside of Jesus, every group is scrambling to have power and exert that power over others. And James asked the question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire things like power, recognition, dignity, honor, acceptance, belonging, but you don't have it, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. See, the rituals and externals can never actually change your life. A ritual cannot take you from being a slave to being a son. The beautiful thing about what God does for me, the Bible answers humanity's deepest questions of power and shame and honor and guilt and innocence and fear. I boast in the cross of Jesus Christ because through my association with Christ, I was made a new creation, not just an old creation going through some new rituals. I was made a new creation. And even more than that, I was adopted as a son into God's family. That means I have somewhere eternal to belong. The world we live in, it is so fragile, isn't it? And if you try to find acceptance today from one group, you'll make another group mad. And then tomorrow, it's all going to change anyway. So God is calling somebody, saying, listen up. People are running around. And sometimes God's people running around like crazy, entering into all the stuff that's flying. There's important answers to these big questions about racism. There's important answers to these big questions. And they're found in relationship to God. Because in Christ, there's neither male nor female or Jew or Greek or circumcised or uncircumcised or barbarian or Scythian or whatever. All those things are dissolved. We are all sons of God. Even the daughters are sons because it has to do with honor. 
has to do with acceptance, has to do with belonging. Read Ephesians chapter 1. You are accepted in the beloved. Now, the challenge is for you to believe that. Now, let's bring it on home. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one trouble me. I like that. Paul's like, look, it's been a long letter. Look, let, just leave me alone. Just leave me alone. Quit harassing me. For now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. You want to talk about marking the body? You want to talk about circumcision and dealing with the flesh? Say, I got marks in my body. Paul, man, to see this guy must have been quite a sight. Short guy with a unibrow and a hooked nose and bow legs. That's what history says about him. And it's full of scars. I mean, this guy was beaten and shipwrecked and stoned and all these things. This guy must have been full of scars. And he goes, you want to talk about meaningful marks in the flesh? You have a scar that you brag about? I do. Have I ever shown you my scar on my arm? When I was 18, I almost cut my right hand off in a construction accident. I fell into a hole. There was a piece of uh, pipe there that went in all the way through the artery, through the nerve. Oh, it was a brilliant sight, believe me. Down to the bone. So I go to the grocery store, and I can't open and close my fingers on this hand. Did you know that? You're learning something about Pastor Steve today. So the funny thing about this is when I go to the grocery store and they give me change, it always falls right through those fingers. Because I can't close them. Because I don't have the nerves that made the muscles atrophy in that hand. But the cool thing about it is the scar, so this was the original scar from the accident, but then to put everything back together, they had to create a scar this way. So I have a cool cross-shaped scar on my arm. I was marked before I was in ministry. God knew. So we got scars. Oh, this happened when I fell through a glass table or I ran through a plexiglass door or whatever it was. And Paul said, oh, you see this scar here? This happened when the Jews ran me out of town this happened when I got shipwrecked. You know, we all just talk about tattoos, right? Oh, can a Christian have tattoos? Paul said, I got some tattoos. And they're not easy to come by. These are the tattoos, the cuttings. And it was the word was used of branding a slave. I got cuttings in my flesh. I got tattoos. And I came by them the honest way. By aligning myself with the Son of God as he was being shamed and is shamed by the world, because I know that when he's in glory, I will also be glorified with him. I got to associate with him in his shame, and I'll be associated with him in his glory. And he says, brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we had a lot of discussion, and I pray that you would filter for all of us kind of how these things apply to our lives, to the days we live in. We, again, appreciate the living and active nature of your word, that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God endures forever. So we pray that you continue to tweak us, Lord, to work in our lives, to challenge us, to live courageously, not to please people, but to be pleasing to you. Wherever that may take us, Lord, we want to follow you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen, amen.